Thank you, Pastor. Or Tim. We fired him as pastor. Uh, thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication. And, and thank you, Pastor Mark and Brother Ryan, for leading us so wonderfully in uh, our music this morning. I knew why Ryan was so motivated. His mom and daddy came to keep an eye on him. Welcome, Kathy and, and uh, Dwayne. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting old. I'm getting old. I don't pull up names as fast. Great to have you all back with us, and just uh, great to have Ryan playing this morning and uh, in the music. As we uh, as we were praying for the missionaries and in, in the uh, missions part of the prayer, Tim was sharing with us. Some some of you've met Sandra Johnson, I believe. I think she came and spoke. I believe she's with the ladder, the Triad Ladder of Hope ministry in in the uh, area down in Thomasville a wonderful ministry rescuing uh, young girls from the um, the sex trafficking industry right here in our midst and so you know it, it's, it's great for us to pray for uh, someone so close by that's doing such a great work and so uh, just be much in prayer uh, for Sandra Johnson and for the triad ladder of hope as they minister in that great way. This morning I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5 as we continue and examining some wonderful times in the life of the nation of Israel. In fact, in, in the world. Not since the, the early days of creation did God walk the earth. And yet in the Gospel accounts, that's exactly what we are seeing. We're witnessing in the person of God, Emmanuel, Christ, Jesus. God is walking the face of the earth. Every time you look and you see reference to Jesus Christ, folks, you're talking about God in the very midst of humanity. And just imagine what it was like to be there to witness Christ. And so as Christ continues in his ministry, when I left off in chapter 5, he was, he was in the area of Galilee, particularly his home base there at the city of Capernaum, one of the largest cities there on the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee, a, 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 a higher populated area than his own hometown, Nazareth. And so as we see Jesus moving about in the region, going about, as, as the scripture says, in the various cities, in fact, there in, first, in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, it says, and it happened when he was in a certain city. And, and so we know that he's moving about in different towns, different cities, and as he's going about, he is proclaiming the imminence, the nearness, the certainty of the kingdom of God. And that's what he's preaching, and that's what he's teaching, and that's what he's revealing to people. But also, he's revealing the divine attributes that he himself manifests as God, Emmanuel, God made flesh, and, and, and those who see and are, have spiritual eyes to see, they see these are qualities and attributes that no normal human being can possess. And Jesus is leaving for those who are led to believe in Christ. No doubt that this indeed is God in our midst. And that's what the essence of Emmanuel is. 
And among all the great divine attributes that Jesus is manifesting that qualifies him as the one and only Messiah of the people of God is the attribute of compassion. No one demonstrated and lived compassion and exhibited compassion towards the downcast and the despairing like the Lord Jesus. And so in the accounts that we'll look at today, I want you to see this, this wonderful compassion that is demonstrated from Christ to those that are the key figures, if you will, in the scriptures that we'll look at, beginning in verse 12. So in each scenario, you see Jesus responding with compassion. And in the first portion of scripture that we look at, verses 12 through 16, I want you to think, if you're taking notes, you might write this down. The Lord responds with compassion to the faith of the desperate. The Lord responds with compassion, godly com compassion, to the faith of the, of the desperate. And we're going to look at a desperate man, if there ever was a desperate man on the earth, here in verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand, Jesus put out his hand, and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but to go and show, show yourself to the priest, and to make an offering for your clean, cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. So you see, Jesus is never trying to circumvent the law. He's making sure that he is giving respect to the law, but he also is going even beyond the law. And that's what he said. He came to fulfill the law. Verse 15. Then the report went, out, went around concerning him all the more. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Look at verse 16. It's interesting that Luke puts this in here. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Jesus is at the peak of popularity. He is known all over the area. And so it, with this great demand upon his time and upon his energy as people are coming to him to hear the wonderful revelations of authoritative teaching and to experience the power of his healing grace, it, you know, there are times when Jesus has to withdraw. I find a lot of encouragement to that. Because when we're serving the Lord, whether, you know, in ministry or in lay ministry, as we dedicate ourselves to being followers of Christ, there are a lot of demands. And, and it can be draining. And if it was good enough and important enough for the Lord to withdraw from time to time, to be alone and to pray, then I would say certainly good for us. But as we look at this portion of the, of the message this morning, the Lord responds to the faith of this desperate man. Leprosy would, would strike terror in the hearts of a person much like the word cancer does in our culture today. Leprosy known today more as Hansen's disease, named for G.H. Uh, Hansen, a Norwegian biologist who isolated and discovered the bacteria that causes leprosy back in 1873. 
Leprosy in Jesus' day in first century Palestine, but not only isolated to first century ancient Israel or the Middle East, ancient historical records in the, in the countries of China and India and even Egypt reveal that leprosy was a dreaded disease. But, but here in this context among the Jews, it, it was. Even back in the day of Moses, and it was incorporated into the, into the law, uh, teachings on on, on leprosy. Leprosy was an awful, dreaded, terrible disease. It attacked the skin uh, 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 of the candidate who had it, the, the patient who suffered with it. It, it attacked the peripheral nerves and the mucous membranes and, and, and the tissues of the face. Oftentimes a person that suffered with severe leprosy, the, the nose would collapse and the face would be disfigured and the skin because of the mucous membrane breaking down would begin to just fold and flaps over the face and people were considered to have what they call lion face features. They looked almost unhuman. And because of the, the deadening of the nerves and the extremities, they lost their feelings and their fingers, their hands, their toes. And it was not uncommon for, for lepers to lose their fingers, cut them right off, not even know it, or burn them off in, in fires, or, or their toes or likewise, or they just rot off. Or maybe uh, rats would chew their toes off in, in portions of their feet. So, so not only was it a hideous disease in what they suffered physically, but also it was a very socially isolating disease because the Levitical law, going all the way back to the days of Moses, and I'll, I'll just take you back to Leviticus in chapter 13 in verses 45. This is what God said through Moses, Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. In other words, they would cover their mouth at a distance and shout to the, 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 as loud as they could, Unclean, unclean, to warn those who were coming. In verse 46, there in Leviticus 13, he says, He shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone. His habitation shall be outside of the camp. So you see, it was not only a, a, a terrible time of physical suffering, but it was an emotionally anguishing time being isolated from the people you loved. Imagine not being able to come close to, to people that you, you, your family, your friends, and and, and and never be able to come into the town. If you went to worship in the synagogue, you had to be confined to just a certain part of the synagogue that only the lepers could, could come into, but you were considered to be totally unclean. And you'll notice there in chapter 5 of Luke that Dr. Luke, the physician, is, is careful to give us a clear diagnosis. He doesn't just say he has leprosy. He says he's full of leprosy. This is a man with a severe case of le leprosy. You say, well, Pastor, why are you dwelling so much on the physiology of the problem? Because I want you to see the level of desperation that gripped this man. And he had heard the stories of Jesus Christ. He'd heard about this Jesus from Nazareth. He'd heard that, that this Jesus was able to do that, which no physician in their time could possibly do. It was a very hopeless situation for someone to be diagnosed with leprosy. So the leper's disease left him alienated and without hope. And in desperation, this dying man, he sees Jesus and he does the unthinkable. He approaches, you understand? 
In that time, you're supposed to stand at a, a measured distance from the people, cry unclean, and in some rabbinical teachings, it was even told that if a leper comes near, you're supposed to throw rocks at them to remind them that they're isolated and alienated and not to approach others because of the contagious nature of the disease. And yet Luke tells us in this situation here that he came, he approached Jesus, he fell on his face at, at Jesus' feet and begged him. Lepers never were supposed to do that, but this is a desperate man who realized that the only possible hope he had was in the man Jesus but not only do we see that this leper was exhibiting a highly unusual response in approaching Jesus, brothers and sisters, I hope you'll look and see how Jesus responds. In verse 13 it says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, put out his hand and, and touched him. He never touched a leper. And certainly not if you were a religious man. Oh, Rabbi, you remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan when the, the, the priest and the Levite came, Levite came along and they saw the man who'd been beaten up, you know, and, and left for dead. And if he was possibly dead, he was unclean. They were not, they were not going to go near that man for the fear of being unclean. And yet here's a, a, a man that was regarded in the public's eye as a rabbi, and he's actually reaching out. He's taking the initiative to reach to this man because, you see, Jesus sees in the heart of this desperate leper, Jesus sees elements of faith. You say, how do you know that? Did you hear what the man said when he's crying out to Jesus? He says, Lord, if you are willing. He didn't say, if you're able if you're willing, you can make me clean. Folks, that's faith. And Jesus responds to that. Jesus responds to the man's faith. He responds to the man's worship. He, he falls before the Lord. Reminding me of Psalm 95, 6, where it says, Come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our, our Maker. And Jesus responds with such compassion, so much so as to reach out and actually touch the man. Do you understand if you're suffering from a severe case of leprosy and you've been confined to a leper colony outside of the gates of the city, do you understand that it has been a long, long time since this man has felt the hand of anybody touching him? And suddenly the hand of God is laid upon him and he knows in his heart it's going to be all right. And it says in verse 13, and immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus doesn't do anything halfway. He doesn't leave the man to linger and say, now just watch for two or three days or six weeks or whatever. Immediately the man was healed. Folks, I want you to see as hard as it is for us to wrap our minds around the plight of this leper, I want you to see that we were in a spiritual sense very much like him at one point in our lives. In a spiritual sense, every person desperately needs the Lord. That's why I like that song. People need the Lord. 
You say, well, Pastor, why do we want to engage on this who's your one campaign? Why do we want to take such time in our Christian growth groups to study and to discuss evangelism? I'll tell you why. Because people need the Lord. We were those people at one time in our life. There was a time when the spiritual leprosy, sin, plagued every one of our lives. We were just as desperate as this man, but spiritually so. The scripture tells us clearly without any shadow of a doubt in Romans 3 23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and in 6 23 of Romans Paul says and the penalty of sin is death folks understand he's not talking about when your heart stops beating and when you breathe your last breath and the brain wave in your uh, brain stops listen he's talking about alienation separation from God for eternity and every one of us were just as desperate as this man. And by the grace of God, he gave us the faith that opened our spiritual eyes to see that the only hope that we had to be rid of the terrible dreaded disease of spiritual leprosy called sin was to throw ourselves at the foot of Jesus Christ and say, oh God, if you're willing, I know you can save me. Well, the good thing is we know from the cross that Jesus is willing. He died for us. Laid his life on that cross. Laid down his life on that cross. And because of that, we in our desperate, desperate state, through faith, discovered the ultimate touch of the healer. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul tells us very simply, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves is a gift of God. I think we've lost sight of just how desperate we were at one time. I think it would flavor the way that we worship God. I believe it would bring enthusiasm back into the sanctuary again. I think it would bring humble Christians before the altar of God again on our knees, praising God and thanking Him for being so good and so kind and merciful to respond to our our faith in Jesus Christ. It's like that old song says, He touched me, oh, He touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something wonderful happened. I know He touched me, and He made me whole. Do you still celebrate the fact that Jesus responded to your faith in a desperate state? As we move further, we, Jesus continues to reveal things about Himself and this deep compassion that He has for people, not just those who are desperate, but as we look further in this account given to us by the, the Gospel writer Luke in verse 17, we see that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, responds to the faith of the determined. Jesus, by compassion, responds to the faith of the determined. In verse 17 it says, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. You understand we talked about how the, the, the Spirit of God superintending the life of God the, the, the Son 
is, is, is administering, if you will, or monitoring and measuring out the power of God to Jesus as he needs it. And on this particular day, there was a great flow of the power of God in Christ administered by the Holy Spirit such that there was healing going on. But notice the audience that had assembled to hear Jesus teach that day. Folks, I submit that it wasn't by coincidence, certainly not by accident, that the room was full of Pharisees and teachers of the law we call the scribes. They were the legalists of that day. You see, if you were following along with Tim on Sunday evenings in the adult quip hour in the Gospel of John, John revealed to us that Jesus had had some run-ins with the legal authorities of his day. In John's Gospel in chapter 2, it tells us in verse 13 through 16 that Jesus went into the temple. And there he saw this terrible hypocrisy. This apostasy of the temple, the house of God had been made to be a den of thieves. You recall, Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers. He says, how dare you establish some money-making capitalist operation in a place that's supposed to be a house of prayer. And he made a whip and he drove them out of the temple. And of course, behind this Sinister operation where the Sadducees and the priests and so he's costing them a good profit and he is challenging the legal authorities of his very day. From that day on, got, they've got their eye on Jesus. Wherever he walked around in the city of Jerusalem and Judea, I'm sure they were going, we're watching you. And they hear the reports of Jesus' popularity and they hear the, the teachings, they hear about the authority of his teachings. And so they've assembled in this room. They're looking for any clue that they can find, any slip up on his part that they might cause him trouble and discredit him and destroy him. Because you see, they feel very threatened by the presence of this radical rabbi, if you will. And so as we as we look and see that Jesus is here in this, in this place and, and, and there the stage is set for I believe one of the most powerful visual lessons that Jesus will, will teach in his earthly ministry is about to take place. Go back to verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men, doesn't give their names, brought on a bed of man who was paralyzed. We don't know what caused the man's paralysis. We don't know how long he suffered from paralysis. But you understand the disabling nature of paralysis for a man who would normally provide for himself or provide for his family and now he's absolutely helpless. He can't even walk to Jesus. But I want you to watch and see how Jesus responds. So then behold, men brought a bed, brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him in and lay him before him, before Jesus. In verse 19, And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop, and let him down with his bed through the tiling 
on the, into the midst before Jesus. So just kind of envision this scene. Here's this house. It doesn't say whose house it was. But there Jesus is assembled. Probably in what we'd look, think of as the living room. And he's teaching. And in that room is a, a crowd of people. But certainly the Pharisees, the scribes. And they're all there. And, they, and all of a sudden they see flakes of tile and maybe some plaster beginning to drop down right, right down. Maybe Jesus falling some on him and he's brushing out of his hair and people thinking, is it a rat? And it gets louder. And before you know it, the, the, the plaster just gives way and then they look up and they see the towel beginning to slide back from the beams and, and people are starting to wonder as all of a sudden the sunlight begins to shower down into this normally fairly dark room. <laughs> but as they're watching in amazement wondering what's next, all of a sudden they see this this pallet, if you will, a portable bed with a man's feet hanging over the edges at the end of it and they see ropes and, and they see faces of four men who are slowly lowering this bed, this pallet, down till it stops at, on the floor in the, in the feet of, at the feet of Jesus. Now I just wondered as Jesus, as this paralyzed man is being lowered down and he's about face level with Jesus, did he just say, Hi. Hey, Jesus. Nice day. Just thought I'd drop in. I don't know. <laughs> just imagine. People are probably just like, dong. But, but I want you to see that Luke is capturing the details of this event because here in just a moment, a paralyzed man, a man in a helpless condition, he's about to discover the full power of of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize the full power. In verse 20, it says, So when he, Jesus, saw their faith, not just the paralyzed man's faith, it didn't say his faith, but their faith. This is the collective work here going on. If the man were able to walk, he'd be there by himself. But unable to walk, he's relying not only upon his faith, but he's also relying upon the faith of his friends to take him to this healer. And what friends they are! That they wouldn't be detained or distracted or put off by the crowd. And I evangelizing those who are lost and unsaved, how much does it take to discourage us? from bringing the lost to Christ. Are we as determined as these fellows were? They knew in their heart, all we got to do is get to Jesus. Whatever it takes, all we need to do is get to Jesus. He is the only hope. He is the only one. So when he saw their faith, he said to him, the man that was paralyzed, man, your sins are forgiven you. I like the anonymous nature of the story because names really aren't that important. Because you see, Jesus will respond to the determined faith of any man, any woman, any young person who truly understands. Jesus reads our hearts. He knows. And Jesus simply said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And it says there, Luke 
reminds, uh, tells us in verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know something? They're right. Nobody can forgive sins but the one who is holy and righteous. But the problem is, just as this paralyzed man through faith was able to see, through sin, they were blind. They couldn't see God sitting in the living room right in their very midst. So it's for him to have the audacity to say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Oh, it's blasphemy. And I'm thinking they're writing fast and furious and they're getting their notes and they're recording every single word because they're thinking in their minds, boy, we got him now. But Jesus, see, knew all along exactly what was going on. Well, Jesus carries it on. He's going to play this thing right along to the very end. In verse 22, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, see, he can read their minds. He can read their hearts. He can read your thoughts. He can read my heart. He answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk? That's a good logical question. Anybody can walk around if they dare want to try to be blasphemous and say your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. How are you going to prove it? How are you going to prove they're wrong? But what is it to say to a man who possibly has never walked in his life or it's been many years and the doctors of that day have written him off as absolutely hopeless to be able to walk? What is it to say to a person like that? Get up and walk. That was a rhetorical question. The answer was easy. <laughs> of course, the easy thing to do is simply just say your sins are forgiven because nobody can disprove you. And Christ understood that. Look at verse 24. But that you may know the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite terms to use for Himself as the Messiah. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately, he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. In this short glimpse into the character and the nature of Christ, we see his omniscience, the fact that he could read the minds and hearts of the Pharisees and scribes, but we see his omnipotence. When we talk about the omnipotence of God, El Shaddai in the Old Testament, He is invincible. He is all-powerful. There is no power to rival God. There is nothing God cannot do in fulfilling His will. And God said to the man, Get up. And by the way, get your bed and take it with you. How do we know the man was so completely healed? He wasn't wobbling on his feet. Like some of these fake TV faith healers that claim to heal somebody and the poor guy has to have help getting off the stage. Not the case. 
Not the case. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, look, you, you're going to be mighty weak now because you've been paralyzed for years, so get somebody else to carry your bed. You, you just see if you can walk on back home. No! Jesus understood. He didn't do anything halfway to demonstrate to his, his, his spiritual adversaries and to everybody else. He says, hey, fella, get up and grab that bed and get on home. And man, I'm going to tell you what, I guarantee you that fellow didn't miss a step. He was probably running down the street, carrying that bed, shouting hallelujah, because he's running home to show his wife and his family evidence that he was a healed man again. Why? Because of faith in Jesus. And Jesus responded to that determined faith. Might I remind you as you think about the four faithful friends of this man, that you and I as a church today have a responsibility as the church of Jesus Christ today, the body of Christ, we are called to bring the spiritually paralyzed to Christ. Folks, I'm not talking about just bringing the church. We're not in the business of filling up pews and having big numbers, but we are in the business of bringing people to Jesus Christ. And if they are truly converted by the power of the Spirit of God and transformed to be followers of Jesus Christ, then no doubt they will be led to be present and active and involved in the local church. But it's our business to help them come to Christ. And many of them are paralyzed by and blinded by faith or by lack of faith, by spiritual blindness, And we can be used by the Spirit of God to help facilitate them coming to Jesus Christ by befriending them, showing love towards them, showing understanding towards them, taking interest in them, take the time to develop a relationship and pray that the Spirit of God would give us the, the opportunity to share the best news they will ever hear on this side of eternity. Jesus Christ saves. He heals those who are in the grips of the dreaded sin, spiritual leprosy. He heals those who are paralyzed by lack of faith and sin. And Jesus is able to save the lost, but he's also able to heal. You notice Jesus told the man first, your sins are forgiven. He's got the right order of priority, doesn't he? Because it doesn't matter whether he healed that man or not. The greatest gift that Jesus could have given him, he gave him first in saying, your sins are forgiven. Now let me show you how you can know. And then he gave him healing. Folks, we need to bring people to Jesus Christ, help them, those who are spiritually paralyzed, to come to Christ because not only will Jesus save them, but listen, by the power, the working of the Spirit of God, he not only will save them, but he will heal them. He will heal them of sin's disabling effects upon their life. Whether it be addictions, whether it be sexual immorality, whether it be violence, whether it be dishonesty, you name it. When we bring them to Christ and we help facilitate them coming to Christ and they experience the wonderful, life-changing, eternal transformation of salvation, let me tell you something, then they're in a position to Jesus, for Jesus to heal their life. And finally, as we move on, in verse 
26, it says, And they were all amazed, and they glorified God. Wait a minute. Luke said they all were amazed. And they all glorified God. That just led me to believe you suppose God got a hold of the Pharisees and the scribes too because it didn't say all except the Pharisees. Hey, maybe this was such a, a, an absolutely mind-boggling, life-changing event. I'll tell you, it was one of the greatest, greatest visual lessons that we see in the life and ministry of Jesus right there in that living room. And they were glorifying God and were filled with fear, which is deep reverence for God, saying, we have seen strange things today. This is not an ordinary tent meeting. But I also want you to see, not only does the Lord respond to the faith of the desperate, or He responds to the faith of the determined, but praise God, He responds to the faith of the despised. In verse 27, after these things, He went out. If you're reading in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 13, He, doesn't, he, he makes it clear He's not just talking about going out of the house. He says in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, he says as he was back around the area of the Sea of Galilee. So probably some distance from the house. But anyway, he's still in the region. And he saw a tax collector named Levi. We know him better as Matthew, the writer of the Gospel. Sitting at the tax office. Now, you know, I was reading in Dr. John MacArthur's commentary on Luke, and he was talking about, according to the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinical writings Jewish historians maintain, that there were two types of tax collectors. One were the go-by, and these were the general tax collectors that collected taxes for income, property, poll taxes. But then you had those that sat at the tax booth, there's another class of tax collectors, and they were called the mooks. And, and, and they were actually in two divisions. You had the grand mooks and the little mooks. The grand mooks were like the godfathers. You know, they had the, the money and three-piece suit and had the cigar, and they go, wow. <laughs> no, they, they had little mooks working for them. They, they had a whole region. They controlled all the income coming in. They were filthy rich because they were bilking the people at least their little mokes were. A little moke had a tax booth that was owned by the grand moke, and he worked for him. But, but the good thing for the grand moke is he's back in his palace, smoking a cigar, you know, and, and sometimes not even identified by the people, the general public. He's safe and sound. It's the little mokes. The little guys that are out there in that little tax booth alongside the road that are taxing people on their wares and their their goods as they're traveling up and down the road and people don't like taxes and folks it was not a good job being a little mook because the people saw you every day and according to Jewish tradition tax collectors were despised I mean they were the, the scum of the earth you were down there tax collectors and other sinners tax collectors were so so despised by Jewish society, they were banned from the synagogue, they were banned from being witnesses in court hearings, you know, certainly not in social gatherings. You know, if you want to say something to really irritate somebody, say, your mother was a tax collector. Now, <laughs> I don't know that for a fact, but it was just a, they, that's how despised they were. 
And yet we find there was one there by the name of Levi. And Jesus recognized the presence of faith in the heart of an unrighteous, despised sinner. Let's read. It says that Jesus saw this tax collector named Matthew sitting in the tax office. He's along the road, a busy road there in the area of Capernaum. And he said to him, follow me. You know, and, and that's interesting. Do you remember I was telling you about the Apostle Peter who became a disciple? But, but it was a process for Peter. First there was the encounter. Then there was the development of the relationship. And finally, with the fishing miracle, that's when his eyes were opened and he dropped everything and he followed Jesus. So it was a process. But back in John chapter 1, I believe it was, where Philip, Philip Jesus just called and he left and he followed Jesus. Here you noticed it, Levi. Now, granted, he was a little moat, but he had a pretty good living. Because, see, he could, he could gouge people as much as he want, then he'd pass along to the big moat. So he was, he was getting a, a pretty good inflated salary, probably had a good living. Everybody hated him. He'd watch his back. But other than that, it was a good living. And, and so all, all of a sudden, Luke tells us when Jesus simply said, follow me, Jesus saw the faith that was in Levi. Levi had heard Jesus was a healer. He had heard that this Jesus spoke with divine authority. He had heard that this Jesus was teaching the kingdom of God. He had heard that this Jesus was unlike any other rabbi in all of Jewish society. But God gave him the faith to trust in Jesus. Jesus identified that faith and he looked into the eyes of Levi and he says, follow me. He opened his eyes to see that he could go from a good life to the abundant life. And look what it says. That he left all, rose up, and followed him. No questions asked. In Matthew's version of that, that same story, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, I thought it was interesting. Matthew himself, writing about this, is humble. He doesn't mention about leaving everything behind. He just simply says, I got up and followed Jesus. But you know that's what Christ calls us all to do? If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, So likewise, unless you forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. You see, it's that kind of just getting up and leaving everything behind and choosing to follow Christ. And his new life, don't miss this, his new life in Christ becomes a conduit through which others came to Christ. Because it tells us in verse 29, then Levi gave him, Jesus, a great feast in his own house and there were a great number of tax collectors and others, no telling, maybe prostitutes, maybe drug dealers, I mean, yeah, probably the scum of society, I mean, if you're a tax collector, you don't have a lot of respectable friends. So anyway, he's got them all there. But guess what? They meet Jesus. In verse 30, But the scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, of course, reading their minds, and in verse 31 says, And Jesus answered and said to them, 
Those who are well, now let me just point out something Luke is doing here, <coughs> Christ did, and Luke is recording. There's an element of sarcasm here. Don't miss it. Because Jesus is using words to express the opposite. So, he says, those who are well, who think they're well, do not need a physician. You know, a person can be inflicted with a deadly disease. And it's ravaging their body. And it's, it's, take, it's bringing them to a, a date with death. They can be living with a dreaded terminal disease and in their mind think there's, no, there's nothing wrong with me. You probably have some relatives that, you know, you try to say, hey, you know, you're, you're sick. You need to go, no. <laughs> I don't need a, <laughs> oh, my heart. I don't need a doctor. Spiritually speaking, that was, the, that was the case with the Pharisees and the scribes. They didn't realize how spiritually they sick, sick they were, but Jesus made it clear. He says those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick, those who know by faith that they need saving. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, that is those who think they're righteous, the self-righteous, but sinners to repent. Jesus made it clear the nature of his ministry. He recognized the faith of this despised tax collector who yet put his trust in Jesus. Matthew knew he was in desperate need. He knew he needed Jesus. And Jesus saved him. But on the other hand, in contrast, Jesus rebukes the self-righteous attitudes of the religious elite of their day. They are spiritually blind. They cannot even see how desperately lost they are because they put their faith in themselves and in their self-righteous acts and in their misunderstanding of the law. I appreciate what Tim brought out when he was preaching in Romans 3 when he talked about how the Apostle Paul revealed that the law does not bring salvation, but rather condemnation. And Paul made it clear in Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, I've come for those who need me and they know that they need me. Those who are desperate. Those who are determined to get to me and the message that I have no matter what it takes. And even those who are despised, the lowest of the low, that society has just absolutely written off, Jesus says, if they see through the eyes of faith their sinfulness and their need for me, he says, those are the ones that I've come for. And all through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, you will see this compassion for such sinners as that played out.